Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey Fleck here along with Shab Marquitz. We are your hosts for the weekend's edition. Also your hosts throughout the week, as I always mention, on our website, kereport.com, and podcast search The KE Report. That's where you can get all of our daily editorials focused on market moves as well as company updates really just trying to give all of you, our listeners, the best outlook and the best information we can on these markets that have continued to be pretty tough this year. To kick off this show, we're going to talk a bit more macro concepts with Mark Chandler, and then we're going to move over into some more of the resource investing that I know you all want to hear more specifically, maybe even some of the stocks. But again, something to consider is that All stocks do seem to be broadly correcting this year. Mark, let's kick off this segment with a a key story from this week, and that was the Bank of England stepping in to their bond market to at least control or put a little control in that yield environment. This did cause some very short-term volatility. However, the market seemed to have reversed pretty quickly after that initial volatility, this all is also carrying over to uh, people assuming that other central banks are going to start doing, who knows, similar things in their bond market. And it all ties into that whole concept of QE. Are central banks getting into QE by issuing or putting, creating more money to put into the markets wherever they see fit? Mark, your takeaway from the Bank of England intervening in their bond market this week. Yeah, thanks, Corey. I think that you're right that the Bank of England development, really the UK developments, are what uh, this week will be remembered by most. It began off at the end of last week, really, when the new government announced their fiscal plans. Oh, excuse me, in the market, it just panned them. Nearly everybody you can imagine, economists, the IMF, the US rating agencies, and because the Bank of England, excuse me, the, the UK government announced basically a huge fiscal stimulus plan, while the Bank of England is fighting inflation and raising interest rates. Many people see that as a contradiction. And they wondered about the twin deficit problem of both the large current account deficit and a bigger budget deficit. This took sterling sharply lower. And basically, it was like foreign capital strike, foreigners selling bonds and the sterling and what ends up happening is that it posed systemic risk. And this is why the Bank of England stepped into the market and announced a bond buying program. Remember what was happening? Next month, the Bank of England had planned on selling bonds that it had bought during COVID. It was going to be aggressively unwinding them in a, in a version of QT. Most countries that are moving towards QT see a passive rollover. That is, when the bonds mature, they just won't replace as much of them. The Bank of England was one of the few banks that talked about and was actually planning on selling the bonds. It suspended that program and announced a program to buy bonds. It says it's buying these bonds not to influence monetary policy, but to to inject some stability in the markets. The markets and the Bank of England has been encouraging the idea that in response to the fiscal stimulus, they're going to have to hike rates aggressively. They don't meet until November 3rd, 
but the market, the swaps market, is pricing in a, a rate hike of 150 basis points. Well, that would be a pretty about face as far as their policy if they do a 150 basis point rate hike in the UK. But Mark, we've seen the same pattern playing out really with central banks and nations all over the globe. I mean, we saw what the ECB was forced to do by starting to hike rates when they still had a lot of economic woes, but inflation is pushing them to get on the tightening policy bandwagon. And then we saw last week what happened, or maybe it was two weeks ago, with the Bank of Japan selling U.S. treasuries to backstop the yen and and to buy some of their bonds. So we had an interesting discussion before we started recording today about is it QE? Is it not QE? Is it just a semantics thing? And hardliners would say if the central banks are in there buying bonds to stabilize their currencies, that is quantitative easing. But you made the point that this has been going on for a long time, and it wasn't even called QE before the 2008-2009 financial crisis, and that there's times where it's really the messaging and the policy, that the combination of those two that needs to be done better. I'd love you to expand on that point for our audience. Sure, I think that you know, you've got different channels in which policy t- has its impact. Uh, Powell talked about the tightening of financial conditions in the U.S., and he mentions that the strong dollar is one of the channels by which it takes place on. Oftentimes, the market emphasizes quantities, like money supplies or prices. And I'm, I'm just suggesting that there's a, a third channel. And I think it's especially on these kind of policies. And when people talk about things that sometimes are not tangible, like R star or the, or the natural rate of unemployment, that what matters is the communication channel. I think we sometimes underestimate how powerful that is. So, for example, the Bank of Japan has in the past, slowed down its bond buying. But nobody called it tapering because it doesn't say it was tapering. When the Federal Reserve uh, buys an asset and says, we're just buying this asset, not really trying to influence prices, I think that matters. And so what the Bank of England did this week, when they announced about a 65 billion sterling gilt purchase program, they said, this is not quantitative easing. We're doing this to promote stability in the capital markets in our bond market because money. Pe- there's several reports about uh, that UK pension funds were at risk. The higher volatility, the big jump in interest rates required larger margin money to be put up collateral, and this would have this was a, a huge liquidity squeeze that could have turned into a solvency problem if this would have been per- continued. And so the UK, the Bank of England says, this is how we're going to distinguish these bond purchases from QE. First, they're going to go to a different account. Secondly, as soon as we can, we want to sell these off. And so they try to make a distinction, whether whether, whether you buy it or not, that, it, that, that there is a clear distinction. They're trying to communicate that there's a distinction. And I would think that the market, again, rightly or wrongly, is believing them. And, and I say that because UK interest rates have fallen back. They're not back to where they were previously, but they have fallen back. Sterling got down to 103 and a half, I mentioned Monday morning. And today we got to, we made highs for uh, since then, almost 112 and a half. So Sterling almost recouped everything it had lost. UK rates on the week are still a bit higher, uh, but they're, they're, that if the Bank of England intervention in their debt market was to promote or inject stability, I think at least at the first battle, they've won. Now, Mark, this whole concept about is it QE, is it not QE? I think what we need to 
carry over to is how it will impact economic data and even more importantly, how it could even impact inflation, because that was the whole narrative over the last over a decade now is that central banks were doing QE and it wasn't impacting inflation. And then since COVID, for a number of reasons, but one reason also being a lot of money simply hit the direct bank accounts of individuals, that definitely helped rise inflation. Any of these actions that you see are being undertaken now, how does it carry over to economic data and, more importantly, inflation data? You're right. People are very concerned that that the UK offering this fiscal stimulus now exacerbates their price pressures. On the other hand, the, the economy is on the verge of a recession. It might already be in a recession. And so the idea is, is this trade-off. I would say this, that the uh, that it's hard to measure like how much tightening or how much easing buying, say that the Bank of England buys 5 billion pounds uh, worth of uh, gilts this week or so. How much easing does that really equal? Uh, how much would, if they sold the bonds, so I, I don't know. My, my, my sense is something like this, that the that this policy mix, and that's really what I've been trying to focus on is this policy mix. And I look for these patterns, this policy mix that is being introduced in the UK of tighter monetary policy, looser fiscal policy, tends to be good for a currency. This is what Reagan and Volcker had. Remember, Reagan comes in, cuts taxes, boosts spending, Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve raising interest rates aggressively, dollar shoots up. This is what Germany had when the Berlin Wall fell. Remember the West Germans like have a leveraged buyout of East Germany, converting the, Deut- the, 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 the Eastern German mark into the Deutschmark. Uh, very, very uh, stimulative fiscally. Bundesbank steps on the brakes. You have the Ubermark, the super Deutschmark. It so destabilized things in Europe. That's what was to sort of pave the ground for the birth of the euro and the, and the monetary union. We had that same policy mix in the U.S. recently when we had uh, President Trump cutting taxes while the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates. This policy mix, uh, is, it's a gamble. I think it's a gamble in the U.K. And I think the risks are uh, that they cause more inflation, that doesn't really stimulate the economy or avoid a recession. And ultimately, this is a political issue as well, because I think that if, if trust loses this battle, uh, that you'll see uh, Labour get elected, and Labour is running uh, well ahead in the polls. So I think it's both policy, uh, it is a gamble, but I think that a lot of this press is so it's so reminiscent of the same reaction that Thatcher got and that Reagan got. Remember when Reagan was trying to promote the same kind of policies, his, the guy who was running against him, George Bush, called it voodoo economics. And so I, I think that there's very little that Trust did in that budget. It seems surprising. Uh, it's basically what she campaigned on. And so I, I think that this is what uh, this is sort of the consequences of it. But it, I do think it's a gamble. And if they can get growth, I think it all rests on growth in the UK. If they can get growth, the other problems will seem more modest. Well, Mark, those were some good historic analogs as far as uh, the Reagan era where he was cutting taxes and that Vol- Volcker was uh, hiking race. Same thing with the Berlin Wall period. And also even the period we just saw with Trump where he was uh, cutting taxes and they were hiking rates. But you made the point that there's the communication channel and that's an important channel. But I would argue there's a sender and a receiver. And the way the market received the Bank of England news was looking ahead at all the other central banks and saying, ah, look, Mark, they're all going to capitulate when the uh, 
when the rubber hits the road uh, and things get too crazy and we get to an insolvency issue, the Fed is going to have to do the same thing. And so what we saw was a strange reaction on Wednesday where the dollar sold off. To your point, the UK pound uh, sterling did surge higher and everybody got excited and bullish again in the US equity markets, even in the commodity space, because they thought this means that eventually the Fed's going to pivot. How did you read that reaction from the markets? Yeah, I think you're right that there was uh, this kind of perverse reaction. I put it a little bit differently. I'd say that people like me talk about, you know, we think we, we say things that sound kind of cute, like that the Fed will raise rates until something breaks. But I think that nothing really broke. But what we heard last week was things creak. And whether it's the Bank of Japan intervening in the foreign exchange market, whether it's the pressure on the Bank of England, and even though these are self, some of these are self-inflicted, there's just so many of them. Uh, the South Korea Central Bank, uh, today's figures showed they had a record amount of intervention. You see several other countries uh, having to intervene or take action uh, because of the instability that they think is, is sparked by high U.S. inflation that's triggering aggressive Fed policy. I tend to think that the U.S., it's one of these things I think where the U.S. is often blamed first. I think that the real cause of inflation is the uh, supply shock, uh, higher energy prices, higher food prices, which the U.S. has little to do with. But, of course, the exchange rate just exacerbates those kind of problems, almost like almost like the, the, these are comorbidities and the dollar just ex, you know exacerbates them. So in general, though, I think that countries have to respond to their inflation pressures. And that is, seems to me to be what everybody's focused on. That, that is to say that ECB, the Federal Reserve, Bank of Canada, the, RB, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Central banks are basically saying inflation is our number one is the number one enemy, and to solve the inflation problem might cause a recession. We're seeing more central banks talking about it. The UK, uh, the, the Bundesbank, and I, I think that uh, we got more people talking in the Federal Reserve recognizing that it's going to be hard to do this without inflicting some pain. And so I, I think that central banks stay the course, but I think we're also at the tail end of it. We've got seventy-five basis points from the Fed uh, in November. Another 50 in December, 125, maybe one hike, maybe it's two hikes next year. The market's favoring one hike. Bank of Canada could be done this year. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia says they might slow down their hikes. Among emerging markets, we're already seeing uh, Hungary, who hiked a big hike this week, says they're done. Uh, looks like the checks might be done. Uh, Brazil says they are done or close to being done. And so I, I sort of think that we've done, we've got a lot of pain this year and that next year, It'll be like uh, the, the consequences of this of these hikes with, you know, because of the lagged effect of them. So, Mark, what does it mean if, let's say, we're at peak hawkishness for the Fed and other central banks? Does it mean that they're going to be cutting rates around the corner? Does it mean that they're simply going to pause? Does it mean less rate hikes? How could this all play out in a level headed sense? Sure. So, yeah, the reason I, th I think that there's peak Fed, Fed hawkishness is a helpful concept is think about what happened when the Fed, uh, at, at the end of the last meeting, the hawkish statement, uh, the rate hike, uh, the dot plots, the market initially, sort of, it, man, the market swings, you know, the pendulum swings violently sometimes, and it priced in 5.5% Fed funds peak rate in the middle of next year. Previously, it was at about 4.5% for Q1. So we, we go up to five and a half percent. That's when I think that a lot of that volatility that Chad was mentioning, a lot of the stock market reaction. Because remember, the uh, in the U.S., our, our indexes, 
the uh, Dow Jones stocks uh, 600 in Europe, the MSCI Asia Pacific index, all these indexes made new lows for the year. And so I, I think that, that was the peak of like how hawkish people thought the Fed could get. And now I think they correct. Uh, the market's back at four and a half percent for Fed funds peak in Q1. And I think that this that market's just sort of correcting its overreaction. I think that's sort of how it plays out. We get more rate hikes. And then by Q1, nearly everybody is done or the, maybe it's the Europeans have till the middle of the year or so. But uh, we have to get through this winter. But I think that we've done a lot of the a lot of the heavy pain has already been a lot of the medicine's been taken. And now we got to see the consequences of it. Well, Mark, just as we look forward to the weeks to come and really balance of the year, is there any key economic news or data points that you are going to be focused on that you think could move the dial? Now, there's only one thing anymore, Chad. Seems like seems like uh, we might talk about the Fed having two mandates, but everybody's focused on one mandate, one issue right now: inflation. That means that uh, next week uh, the U.S. and Canada have the employment data. It means that it doesn't really matter unless it's very weak. Uh, the other indicators from the labor market in the U.S. are robust enough. You know, we saw those weekly initial jobless claims fall to five-month lows. So barring barring some shock on the downside there, the inflation number is the key. And inflation, no matter what it prints, no matter what the monthly print is, it's still going to be too high. And so the Federal Reserve is going to, that's why I think the, the, so the market's there on the 75 basis points for the Fed policy. But I think around the world, I think the inflation is the key. Uh, next week, Tokyo CPI comes down. That's a great lead indicator for the na- national figures. Many people look for that Tokyo CPI to go above 3%. All right, Mark, we're going to wrap it up here. Always interesting chatting with you. And uh, look, this is going to be an ongoing discussion in terms of how central banks are reacting to the data and where the data goes from here. And if they are going to ramp up some of these QE programs in different sectors or, quite frankly, get back to that whole creation of money aspect that we were living with there for practically a decade. Different environment this year, different market moves this year, too. Mark, we'll chat with you again next Friday. Thanks for taking time on this weekend show. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks. Good luck to everybody. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin and Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout.